Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 3, Chapter 3 of War and Peace, Volume 1, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 3 Old Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky received a letter from Prince Vasily in November 1805, announcing that he and his son would be paying him a visit. "'I am starting on a journey of inspection, and, of course, I shall think nothing of an extra seventy miles to come and see you at the same time, my honoured benefactor,' wrote Prince Vasily. "'My son Anatole is accompanying me on his way to the army, so I hope you will allow him personally to express the deep respect that, emulating his father, he feels for you. It seems that there will be no need to bring Mary out. Suitors are coming to us of their own accord," incautiously remarked the little princess on hearing the news. Prince Nicholas frowned, but said nothing. A fortnight after the letter, Prince Vasily's servants came one evening in advance of him, and he and his son arrived next day. Old Bolkonsky had always had a poor opinion of Prince Vasily's character, but more so recently, since in the new reigns of Paul and Alexander, Prince Vasily had risen to high position and honours. And now, from the hints contained in his letter and given by the little princess, he saw which way the wind was blowing, and his low opinion changed into a feeling of contemptuous ill-will. He snorted whenever he mentioned him. On the day of Prince Vasily's arrival, Prince Bolkonsky was particularly discontented and out of temper. Whether he was in a bad temper because Prince Vasily was coming, or whether his being in a bad temper made him specially annoyed at Prince Vasily's visit, he was in a bad temper, and in the morning Tikhon had already advised the architect not to go to the prince with his report. "'Do you hear how he's walking?' said Tikhon drawing the architect's attention to the sound of the prince's footsteps. Stepping flat on his heels, we know what that means. However, at nine o'clock, the prince, in his velvet coat with a sable collar and cap, went out for his usual walk. It had snowed the day before, and the path to the hothouse, along which the prince was in the habit of walking, had been swept. The marks of the broom were still visible in the snow, and a shovel had been left sticking in one of the soft snowbanks that bordered both sides of the path. The prince went through the conservatories, the serfs' quarters, and the outbuildings, frowning and silent. "'Can a sleigh pass?' he asked his overseer, a venerable man, resembling his master in manners and looks, 
who was accompanying him back to the house. "'The snow is deep. I am having the avenue swept, Your Honor.' The prince bowed his head and went up to the porch. "'God be thanked,' thought the overseer. "'The storm has blown over.' "'It would have been hard to drive up, Your Honor,' he added. "'I heard, Your Honor, that a minister is coming to visit Your Honor.' The prince turned round to the overseer and fixed his eyes on him, frowning. "'What? A minister? What minister? Who gave orders?' he said in his shrill, harsh voice. "'The road is not swept for the princess, my daughter, but for a minister. For me there are no ministers.' "'Your honour, I thought—you thought!' shouted the prince, his words coming more and more rapidly and indistinctly. "'You thought! Rascals!' Blaggards, I'll teach you to think!" And lifting his stick, he swung it and would have hit Alpatich, the overseer, had not the latter instinctively avoided the blow. "'Thought! Blaggards!' shouted the prince rapidly. But although Alpatich, frightened at his own temerity in avoiding the stroke, came up to the prince, bowing his bald head resignedly before him, or perhaps for that very reason, the prince, though he continued to shout, "'Blaggards!' throw the snow back on the road!" did not lift his stick again, but hurried into the house. Before dinner Princess Mary and Mademoiselle Bourienne, who knew that the prince was in a bad humour, stood awaiting him. Mademoiselle Bourienne, with a radiant face that said, "'I know nothing, I am the same as usual,' and Prince Mary, pale, frightened, and with downcast eyes. What she found hardest to bear was to know that, on such occasions, she ought to behave like Mademoiselle Bourienne, but could not. She thought, "'If I seem not to notice, he will think that I do not sympathize with him. If I seem sad and out of spirits myself, he will say, as he has done before, that I am in the dumps.' The prince looked at his daughter's frightened face and snorted. "'Fool! What dummy!' he muttered and the other one is not here. They've been telling tales," he thought, referring to the little princess who was not in the dining-room. "'Where is the princess?' he asked. "'Hiding?' "'She is not very well,' answered Mademoiselle Brienne, with a bright smile. "'So she won't come down. It is natural in her state.' "'Hm! Hm!' muttered the prince, sitting down. His plate seemed to him not quite clean and pointing to a spot he flung it away. Tekin caught it and handed it to a footman. The little princess was not unwell, but had such an overpowering fear of the prince that, hearing he was in a bad humour, she decided not to appear. "'I am afraid for the baby,' she said to Mademoiselle Bourienne. "'Heaven knows what a fright might do.' In general, at Bald Hills, the little princess lived in constant fear and with a sense of antipathy to the old prince which she did not realize because the fear was so much the stronger feeling. The prince reciprocated this antipathy, but it was overpowered by his contempt for her. When the little princess had grown accustomed to life at Bald Hills, she took a special fancy to Mademoiselle Bourienne, spent whole days with her, asked her to sleep in her room, and often talked with her about the old prince and criticized him. "'So we are to have visitors, mon prince?' remarked Mademoiselle Bourienne, unfolding her white napkin with her rosy fingers. "'His Excellency Prince Vasily Karagin and his son, I understand?' 
she said inquiringly. Hm! His Excellency is a puppy. I got him his appointment in the service," said the Prince disdainfully. Why, his son is coming, I don't understand. Perhaps Princess Elizabeth and Princess Mary know. I don't want him." He looked at his blushing daughter. "'Are you unwell today, eh? Afraid of the minister, as that idiot Alpatich called him this morning?' "'No, mon père. Though Mademoiselle Bourienne had been so unsuccessful in her choice of a subject, she did not stop talking, but chattered about the conservatories and the beauty of a flower that had just opened, and after the soup the prince became more genial. After dinner he went to see his daughter-in-law. The little princess was sitting at a small table, chattering with Masha, her maid. She grew pale on seeing her father-in-law. She was much altered. She was now plain rather than pretty. Her cheeks had sunk, her lip was drawn up and her eyes drawn down. "'Yes, I feel a kind of oppression,' she said in reply to the prince's question as to how she felt. "'Do you want anything?' "'No, merci, mon père.' "'Well, all right, all right.' He left the room and went to the waiting-room where Alpatich stood with bowed head. "'Has the snow been shoveled back?' Yes, Your Excellency. Forgive me for heaven's sake. It was only my stupidity." All right, all right, interrupted the prince, and laughing his unnatural way, he stretched out his hand for Alpatich to kiss, and then proceeded to his study. Prince Vasily arrived that evening. He was met in the avenue by coachmen and footmen, who, with loud shouts, dragged his sleighs up to one of the lodges over the road purposely laden with snow. Prince Vasily and Anatole had separate rooms assigned to them. Anatole, having taken off his overcoat, sat with arms akimbo before a table, on a corner of which he smilingly and absent-mindedly fixed his large and handsome eyes. He regarded his whole life as a continual round of amusement which someone, for some reason, had to provide for him. And he looked on this visit to a churlish old man and a rich and ugly heiress in the same way. All this might, he thought, turn out very well and amusingly. And why not marry her if she really has so much money? That never does any harm," thought Anatole. He shaved and scented himself with the care and elegance which had become habitual to him, and his handsome head held high entered his father's room with the good-humoured and victorious air natural to him. Prince Vasily's two valets were busy dressing him and he looked round with much animation and cheerfully nodded to his son as the latter entered, as if to say, "'Yes, that's how I want you to look.' "'I say, father, joking apart, is she very hideous?' Anatole asked, as if continuing a conversation the subject of which had often been mentioned during the journey. "'Enough! What nonsense! Above all, try to be respectful and cautious with the old prince.' If he starts a row, I'll go away," said Prince Anatole. I can't bear those old men, eh? Remember, for you everything depends on this." In the meantime, not only was it known in the maidservants' rooms that the minister and his son had arrived, but the appearance of both had been minutely described. Princess Mary was sitting alone in her room, vainly trying to master her agitation. Why did they write? Why did Lisa tell me about it? It can never happen. 
she said, looking at herself in the glass. How shall I enter the drawing-room? Even if I like him, I can't now be myself with him." The mere thought of her father's look filled her with terror. The little princess and Mademoiselle Bourienne had already received from Masha, the lady's maid, the necessary report of how handsome the minister's son was, with his rosy cheeks and dark eyebrows, and with what difficulty the father had dragged his legs upstairs while the son had followed him like an eagle, three steps at a time. Having received this information, the little princess and Mademoiselle Bourienne, whose chattering voices had reached her from the corridor, went into Princess Mary's room. "'You know they've come, Marie?' said the little princess, waddling in and sinking heavily into an armchair. She was no longer in the loose gown she generally wore in the morning, but had on one of her best dresses. Her hair was carefully done, and her face was animated, which, however, did not conceal its sunken and faded outlines. Dressed as she used to be in Petersburg society, it was still more noticeable how much plainer she had become. Some unobtrusive touch had been added to Mademoiselle Bourienne's toilette, which rendered her fresh and pretty face yet more attractive. "'What? Are you going to remain as you are, dear princess?' she began. "'They'll be announcing that the gentlemen are in the drawing-room, and we shall have to go down, and you have not smartened yourself up at all.' The little princess got up, rang for the maid, and hurriedly and merrily began to devise and carry out a plan of how Princess Mary should be dressed. Princess Mary's self-esteem was wounded by the fact that the arrival of a suitor agitated her, and still more so by both her companions not having the least conception that it could be otherwise. To tell them that she felt ashamed for herself and for them would be to betray her agitation, while to decline their offers to dress her would prolong their banter and insistence. She flushed, her beautiful eyes grew dim, red blotches came on her face, and it took on the unattractive, martyr-like expression it so often wore, as she submitted herself to Mademoiselle Bourienne and Lisa. Both these women quite sincerely tried to make her look pretty. She was so plain that neither of them could think of her as a rival, so they began dressing her with perfect sincerity, and with the naive and firm conviction women have that dress can make a face pretty. "'No, really, my dear, this dress is not pretty.' said Lisa, looking sideways at Princess Mary from a little distance. "'You have a maroon dress. Have it fetched. Really. You know, the fate of your whole life may be at stake. But this one is too light. It's not becoming.' It was not the dress, but the face and the whole figure of Princess Mary that was not pretty, but neither Mademoiselle Bourienne nor the little princess felt this. They still thought that if a blue ribbon were placed in the hair, the hair combed up, and the blue scarf arranged lower on the best maroon dress and so on, all would be well. They forgot that the frightened face and the figure could not be altered, and that however they might change the setting and adornment of that face, it would still remain piteous and plain. After two or three changes to which Princess Mary meekly submitted, just as her hair had been arranged on the top of her head, a style that quite altered and spoiled her looks, and she had put on a maroon dress with a pale blue scarf. The little princess walked twice round her, now adjusting a fold of the dress with her little hand, now arranging the scarf and looking at her with her head bent first on one side and then on the other. 
No, it will not do, she said decidedly, clasping her hands. No, Mary, really, this dress does not suit you. I prefer you in your little gray everyday dress. Now please, do it for my sake. Katie, she said to the maid, bring the princess her gray dress, and you'll see, Mademoiselle Brienne, how I shall arrange it," she added, smiling with a foretaste of artistic pleasure. But when Katie brought the required dress, Princess Mary remained sitting motionless before the glass, looking at her face, and saw in the mirror her eyes full of tears and her mouth quivering, ready to burst into sobs. "'Come, dear Princess,' said Mademoiselle Brienne, "'just one more little effort.' The little princess, taking the dress from the maid, came up to Princess Mary. "'Well, now we'll arrange something quite simple and becoming,' she said. The three voices, hers, Mademoiselle Brienne's, and Katie's, who was laughing at something, mingled in a merry sound, like the chirping of birds. "'No, leave me alone,' said Princess Mary. Her voice sounded so serious and so sad that the chirping of the birds was silenced at once. They looked at the beautiful, large, thoughtful eyes full of tears and of thoughts, gazing shiningly and imploringly at them, and understood that it was useless and even cruel to insist. "'At least change your coiffure,' said the little princess. "'Didn't I tell you,' she went on, turning reproachfully to Mademoiselle Brienne, "'Mary's is a face which such a coiffure does not suit in the least not in the least. Please change it." "'Leave me alone. Please leave me alone. It is all quite the same to me,' answered a voice struggling with tears. Mademoiselle Brienne and the little princess had to own to themselves that Princess Mary in this guise looked very plain, worse than usual, but it was too late. She was looking at them with an expression they both knew an expression thoughtful and sad. This expression in Princess Mary did not frighten them, she never inspired fear in anyone, but they knew that when it appeared on her face she became mute and was not to be shaken in her determination. "'You will change it, won't you?' said Lisa. And as Princess Mary gave no answer, she left the room. Princess Mary was left alone. She did not comply with Lisa's request. She not only left her hair as it was, but did not even look in her glass. Letting her arms fall helplessly, she sat with downcast eyes and pondered. A husband, a man, a strong, dominant, and strangely attractive being rose in her imagination, and carried her into a totally different happy world of his own. She fancied a child, her own, such as she had seen the day before in the arms of her nurse's daughter at her own breast, the husband standing by and gazing tenderly at her and the child. But no, it is impossible. I am too ugly, she thought. Please come to tea. The prince will be out in a moment, came the maid's voice at the door. She roused herself and felt appalled at what she had been thinking, and before going down she went into the room where the icons hung and her eyes fixed on the dark face of a large icon of the Saviour lit by a lamp, she stood before it with folded hands for a few moments. A painful doubt filled her soul. Could the joy of love, of earthly love for a man, be for her? 
In her thoughts of marriage, Princess Mary dreamed of happiness and of children, but her strongest, most deeply hidden longing was for earthly love. The more she tried to hide this feeling from others, and even from herself, the stronger it grew. "'Oh, God,' she said, "'how am I to stifle in my heart these temptations of the devil? How am I to renounce forever these vile fancies, so as peacefully to fulfill Thy will?' And scarcely had she put that question than God gave her the answer in her own heart. "'Desire nothing for thyself. Seek nothing, be not anxious or envious. Man's future and thy own fate must remain hidden from thee, but live so that thou mayest be ready for anything. If it be God's will to prove thee in the duties of marriage, be ready to fulfill His will." With this consoling thought, but yet with a hope for the fulfillment of her forbidden earthly longing, Princess Mary sighed, and having crossed herself, went down thinking neither of her gown and coiffure, nor of how she would go in, nor of what she would say. What could all that matter in comparison with the will of God, without whose care not a hair of man's head can fall? End of Book Three, Chapter Three Book Three, Chapter Four of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Four When Princess Mary came down, Prince Vasily and his son were already in the drawing-room, talking to the little princess and Mademoiselle Brienne. When she entered with her heavy step, treading on her heels, the gentleman and Mademoiselle Brienne rose, and the little princess, indicating her to the gentleman, said, "'Voilà, Marie!' Princess Mary saw them all and saw them in detail. She saw Prince Vasily's face, serious for an instant at the sight of her, but immediately smiling again, and the little princess curiously noting the impression Marie produced on the visitors. And she saw Mademoiselle Brienne, with her ribbon and pretty face, and her unusually animated look which was fixed on him, but him she could not see. She only saw something large, brilliant, and handsome moving toward her as she entered the room. Prince Vasily approached first, and she kissed the bold forehead that bent over her hand, and answered his question by saying that, on the contrary, she remembered him quite well. Then Anatole came up to her. She still could not see him. She only felt a soft hand taking hers firmly, and she touched with her lips a white forehead, over which was beautiful light-brown hair smelling of pomade. When she looked up at him she was struck by his beauty. Anatole stood with his right thumb under a button of his uniform, his chest expanded and his back drawn in, slightly swinging one foot, and, with his head a little bent, looked with beaming face at the princess without speaking, and evidently not thinking about her at all. Anatole was not quick-witted, nor ready or eloquent in conversation, but he had the faculty, so invaluable in society, of composure and imperturbable self-possession. If a man lacking in self-confidence remains dumb on a first introduction, and betrays a consciousness of the impropriety of such silence and an anxiety to find something to say, the effect is bad. But Anatole was dumb, swung his foot, and smilingly examined the princess' hair. 
it was evident that he could be silent in this way for a very long time. If anyone finds this silence inconvenient, let him talk, but I don't want to," he seemed to say. Besides this, in his behavior to women Anatole had a manner which particularly inspires in them curiosity, awe, and even love, a supercilious consciousness of his own superiority. It was as if he said to them, "'I know you, I know you, but why should I bother about you? You'd be only too glad, of course.' Perhaps he did not really think this when he met women, even probably he did not, for in general he thought very little. But his looks and manner gave that impression. The princess felt this, and as if wishing to show him that she did not even dare expect to interest him, she turned to his father. The conversation was general and animated, thanks to Princess Lisa's voice and little downy lip that lifted over her white teeth. She met Prince Vasily with that playful manner often employed by lively chatty people, and consisting in the assumption that, between the person they so address and themselves, there are some semi-private long-established jokes and amusing reminiscences, though no such reminiscences really exist, just as none existed in this case. Prince Vasily readily adopted her tone, and the little princess also drew Anatole, whom she hardly knew, into these amusing recollections of things that had never occurred. Mademoiselle Bourienne also shared them, and even Princess Mary felt herself pleasantly made to share in these merry reminiscences. "'Here, at least, we shall have the benefit of your company all to ourselves, dear Prince,' said the little princess, of course in French, to Prince Vasily. "'It's not as at Annette's receptions, where you always ran away. You remember such share, Annette, Anna Pavlovna. "'Ah, but you won't talk politics to me like Annette. And our little tea-table? Oh, yes.' "'Why is it you were never at Annette's?' the little princess asked Anatole. "'Ah, I know, I know,' she said with a sly glance. "'Your brother Hippolyte told me about your goings-on. Oh!' and she shook her finger at him. "'I have even heard of your doings in Paris.' "'And didn't Hippolyte tell you?' asked Prince Vasily, turning to his son and seizing the little princess's arm, as if she would run away and he had just managed to catch her. Didn't he tell you how he himself was pining for the dear princess, and how she showed him the door? Oh, she is a pearl among women, princess," he added, turning to Princess Mary. When Paris was mentioned, Mademoiselle Bourienne, for her part, seized the opportunity of joining in the general current of recollections. She took the liberty of inquiring whether it was long since Anatole had left Paris, and how he had liked that city. Anatole answered the Frenchwoman very readily and, looking at her with a smile, talked to her about her native land. When he saw the pretty little Bourienne, Anatole came to the conclusion that he would not find Bald Hills dull either. "'Not at all bad,' he thought, examining her. "'Not at all bad, that little companion. I hope she will bring her along with her when we're married. La petite a gentille. The little one is charming.' The old prince dressed leisurely in his study, frowning and considering what he was to do. The coming of these visitors annoyed him. "'What are Prince Vasily and that son of his to me? Prince Vasily is a shallow braggart, and his son, no doubt, is a fine specimen,' he grumbled to himself. 
What angered him was that the coming of these visitors revived in his mind an unsettled question he always tried to stifle, one about which he always deceived himself. The question was whether he could ever bring himself to part from his daughter and give her to a husband. The prince never directly asked himself that question, knowing beforehand that he would have to answer it justly, and justice clashed not only with his feelings, but with the very possibility of life. Life without Princess Mary, little as he seemed to value her, was unthinkable to him. And why should she marry, he thought, to be unhappy for certain? There's Lisa, married to Andrew, a better husband one would think could hardly be found nowadays. But is she contented with her lot? And who would marry Marie for love? Plain and awkward. They'll take her for her connections and wealth. And are there no women living unmarried and even the happier for it? So thought Prince Bolkonsky while dressing, and yet the question he was always putting off demanded an immediate answer. Prince Vasily had brought his son with the evident intention of proposing, and to-day or to-morrow he would probably ask for an answer. His birth and position in society were not bad. Well, I've nothing against it, the prince said to himself. But he must be worthy of her, and that is what we shall see. That is what we shall see. That is what we shall see, he added aloud. He entered the drawing-room with his usual alert step, glancing rapidly round the company. He noticed a change in the little princess's dress, Mademoiselle Brienne's ribbon, Princess Mary's unbecoming coiffure, Mademoiselle Brienne's and Anatole's smiles, and the loneliness of his daughter amid the general conversation. "'Got herself up like a fool,' he thought, looking irritably at her. "'She is shameless, and he ignores her.' He went straight up to Prince Vasily. "'Well, how do you do, how do you do? Glad to see you.' "'Friendship laughs at distance,' began Prince Vasily in his usual rapid self-confident familiar tone. "'Here is my second son. Please love and befriend him.' Prince Bolkonsky surveyed Anatole. "'Fine young fellow, fine young fellow,' he said. "'Well, come and kiss me,' and he offered his cheek. Anatole kissed the old man and looked at him with curiosity and perfect composure, waiting for a display of the eccentricities his father had told him to expect. Prince Bolkonsky sat down in his usual place in the corner of the sofa, and, drawing up an armchair for Prince Vasily, pointed to it and began questioning him about political affairs and news. He seemed to listen attentively to what Prince Vasily said, but kept glancing at Princess Mary. And so they are writing from Potsdam already," he said, repeating Prince Vasily's last words. Then rising, he suddenly went up to his daughter. "'Is it for visitors you've got yourself up like that, eh?' said he. "'Fine, very fine. You have done up your hair in this new way for the visitors, and before the visitors I tell you that in future you are never to dare to change your way of dress without my consent.' "'It was my fault, mon père,' interceded the little princess with a blush. You must do as you please," said Prince Bolkonsky, bowing to his daughter-in-law. But she not make a fool of herself. She's plain enough as it is." And he sat down again, paying no more attention to his daughter, who was reduced to tears. "'On the contrary, that coiffure suits the princess very well,' said Prince Vasily. "'Now you, young prince, what's your name?' said Prince Bolkonsky, turning to Anatole. 
Come here, let us talk and get acquainted. Now the fun begins, thought Anatole, sitting down with a smile beside the old prince. Well, my dear boy, I hear you've been educated abroad, not taught to read and write by the deacon, like your father and me. Now tell me, my dear boy, are you serving in the horse guards? asked the old man, scrutinizing Anatole closely and intently. No, I have been transferred to the line, said Anatole, hardly able to restrain his laughter. Ah, that's a good thing. So, my dear boy, you wish to serve the Tsar and the country? It is wartime. Such a fine fellow must serve. Well, are you off to the front? No, Prince. Our regiment has gone to the front, but I am attached. What is it I am attached to, Papa? said Anatole, turning to his father with a laugh. Ah, splendid soldier, splendid! What am I attached to? Ha, ha, ha! laughed Prince Bolkonsky, and Anatole laughed still louder. Suddenly Prince Bolkonsky frowned. You may go, he said to Anatole. Anatole returned, smiling to the ladies. And so you've had him educated abroad, Prince Vasily, haven't you? said the old prince to Prince Vasily. I have done my best for him, and I can assure you the education there is much better than ours. Yes, everything is different nowadays, everything is changed. The lad's a fine fellow, a fine fellow. Well, come with me now. He took Prince Vasily's arm and led him to his study. As soon as they were alone together, Prince Vasily announced his hopes and wishes to the old prince. "'Well, do you think I shall prevent her, that I can't part from her?' said the old prince angrily. "'What an idea! I'm ready for it tomorrow. Only let me tell you, I want to know my son-in-law better. You know my principles, everything above board. I will ask her tomorrow in your presence. If she is willing, then he can stay on. He can stay, and I'll see.' The old prince snorted. "'Let her marry. It's all the same to me!' he screamed in the same piercing tone as when parting from his son. "'I will tell you frankly,' said Prince Vasily, in the tone of a crafty man convinced of the futility of being cunning with so keen-sighted a companion. "'You know, you see right through people. Anatole is no genius, but he is an honest, good-hearted lad, an excellent son or kinsman. All right, all right, we'll see.' As always happens when women lead lonely lives for any length of time without male society, on Anatole's appearance all the three women of Prince Bolkonsky's household felt that their life had not been real till then. Their powers of reasoning, feeling, and observing immediately increased tenfold, and their life, which seemed to have been passed in darkness, was suddenly lit up by a new brightness, full of significance. Princess Mary grew quite unconscious of her face and coiffure. The handsome open face of the man who might perhaps be her husband absorbed all her attention. He seemed to her kind, brave, determined, manly, and magnanimous. She felt convinced of that. Thousands of dreams of a future family life continually rose in her imagination. She drove them away and tried to conceal them. "'But am I not too cold with him?' thought the princess. I try to be reserved because, in the depth of my soul, I feel too near to him already, but then he cannot know what I think of him and may imagine that I do not like him. 
and Princess Mary tried, but could not manage, to be cordial to her new guest. "'Poor girl, she's devilish ugly,' thought Anatole. Mademoiselle Bourienne, also roused to great excitement by Anatole's arrival, thought in another way. Of course she, a handsome young woman without any definite position, without relations or even a country, did not intend to devote her life to serving Prince Bolkonsky, to reading aloud to him and being friends with Princess Mary. Mademoiselle Bourienne had long been waiting for a Russian prince, who, able to appreciate at a glance her superiority to the plain, badly-dressed, ungainly Russian princesses, would fall in love with her and carry her off. And here at last was a Russian prince. Mademoiselle Bourienne knew a story, heard from her aunt but finished in her own way, which she liked to repeat to herself. It was the story of a girl who had been seduced, and to whom her poor mother, sa pauvre mère, appeared, and reproached her for yielding to a man without being married. Mademoiselle Bourienne was often touched to tears as in imagination she told this story to him, her seducer. And now he, a real Russian prince, had appeared. He would carry her away, and then sa pauvre mère would appear, and he would marry her. So her future shaped itself in Mademoiselle Bourienne's head at the very time she was talking to Anatole about Paris. It was not calculation that guided her. She did not even for a moment consider what she should do. But all this had long been familiar to her, and now that Anatole had appeared it just grouped itself around him, and she wished and tried to please him as much as possible. The little princess, like an old war-horse that hears the trumpet, unconsciously and quite forgetting her condition, prepared for the familiar gallop of coquetry, without any ulterior motive or any struggle, but with naive and light-hearted gaiety. Although in female society Anatole usually assumed the role of a man tired of being run after by women, his vanity was flattered by the spectacle of his power over these three women. Besides that, he was beginning to feel for the pretty and provocative Mademoiselle Bourienne that passionate animal feeling which was apt to master him with great suddenness, and prompt him to the coarsest and most reckless actions. After tea the company went into the sitting-room, and Princess Mary was asked to play on the clavichord. Anatole, laughing and in high spirits, came and leaned on his elbows, facing her and beside Mademoiselle Bourienne. Princess Mary felt his look with a painfully joyous emotion. Her favorite sonata bore her into a most intimately poetic world, and the look she felt upon her made that world still more poetic. But Anatole's expression, though his eyes were fixed on her, referred not to her but to the movements of Mademoiselle Bourienne's little foot, which he was then touching with his own under the clavichord. Mademoiselle Bourienne was also looking at Princess Mary and in her lovely eyes there was a look of fearful joy and hope that was also new to the princess. "'How she loves me!' thought Princess Mary. "'How happy I am now, and how happy I may be with such a friend and such a husband!' "'Husband? Can it be possible?' she thought, not daring to look at his face, but still feeling his eyes gazing at her. In the evening, after supper, when all were about to retire, Anatole kissed Princess Mary's hand. She did not know how she found the courage, but she looked straight into his handsome face as it came near to her short-sighted eyes. Turning from Princess Mary, 
he went up and kissed Mademoiselle Bourienne's hand. This was not etiquette, but then he did everything so simply and with such assurance. Mademoiselle Bourienne flushed and gave the princess a frightened look. "'What delicacy!' thought the princess. "'Is it possible that Amélie, Mademoiselle Bourienne, thinks I could be jealous of her and not value her pure affection and devotion to me?' She went up to her and kissed her warmly. Anatole went up to kiss the little princess's hand. "'No, no, no! When your father writes to tell me that you are behaving well, I will give you my hand to kiss. Not till then,' she said. And smilingly raising a finger at him, she left the room. End of Book Three, Chapter Four Book Three, Chapter Five of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Five they all separated, but, except Anatole, who fell asleep as soon as he got into bed, all kept awake a long time that night. "'Is he really to be my husband, this stranger who is so kind? Yes, kind, that is the chief thing,' thought Princess Mary. And fear, which she had seldom experienced, came upon her. She feared to look round. It seemed to her that someone was there standing behind the screen in the dark corner and this someone was he, the devil, and he was also this man with the white forehead, black eyebrows, and red lips. She rang for her maid, and asked her to sleep in her room. Mademoiselle Bourienne walked up and down the conservatory for a long time that evening, vainly expecting someone, now smiling at someone, now working herself up to tears with the imaginary words of her pauvre mère rebuking her for her fall. The little princess grumbled to her maid that her bed was badly made. She could not lie either on her face or on her side. Every position was awkward and uncomfortable, and her burden oppressed her now more than ever, because Anatole's presence had vividly recalled to her the time when she was not like that, and when everything was light and gay. She sat in an armchair in her dressing-jacket and nightcap, and Katie, sleepy and disheveled, beat and turned the heavy feather-bed for the third time, muttering to herself. "'I told you it was all lumps and holes,' the little princess repeated. "'I should be glad enough to fall asleep, so it's not my fault!' And her voice quivered like that of a child about to cry. The old prince did not sleep either. Tikhon, half asleep, heard him pacing angrily about and snorting. The old prince felt as though he had been insulted through his daughter. The insult was the more pointed because it concerned not himself, but another, his daughter, whom he loved more than himself. He kept telling himself that he would consider the whole matter and decide what was right and how he should act, but instead of that he only excited himself more and more. A first man that turns up, she forgets her father and everything else runs upstairs and does up her hair and wags her tail and is unlike herself. Glad to throw her father over. And she knew I should notice it. F, f, f. And don't I see that that idiot had eyes only for Burienne? I shall have to get rid of her. And how is it she has not pride enough to see it? If she has no pride for herself, she might at least have some for my sake. 
She must have shown that the blockhead thinks nothing of her and looks only at Burienne. No, she has no pride. But I'll let her see." The old prince knew that if he told his daughter she was making a mistake, and that Anatole meant to flirt with Mademoiselle Burienne, Princess Mary's self-esteem would be wounded, and his point, not to be parted from her, would be gained. So pacifying himself with this thought, he called Tikhon and began to undress. "'What devil brought them here?' thought he while Tikhon was putting the nightshirt over his dried-up old body and grey-haired chest. "'I never invited them. They came to disturb my life, and there is not much of it left.' "'Devil take em, he muttered, while his head was still covered by the shirt. Tikhon knew his master's habit of sometimes thinking aloud, and therefore met with unaltered looks the angrily inquisitive expression of the face that emerged from the shirt. "'Gone to bed?' asked the prince. Tikhon, like all good valets, instinctively knew the direction of his master's thoughts. He guessed that the question referred to Prince Vasily and his son. "'They have gone to bed and put out their lights, Your Excellency.' "'No good, no good.' said the prince rapidly, and thrusting his feet into his slippers and his arms into the sleeves of his dressing-gown, he went to the couch on which he slept. Though no words had passed between Anatole and Mademoiselle Bourienne, they quite understood one another as to the first part of their romance, up to the appearance of the pauvre mère. They understood that they had much to say to one another in private, and so they had been seeking an opportunity since morning to meet one another alone. When Princess Mary went to her father's room at the usual hour, Mademoiselle Bourienne and Anatole met in the conservatory. Princess Mary went to the door of the study with special trepidation. It seemed to her that not only did everybody know that her fate would be decided that day, but that they also knew what she thought about it. She read this in Tikhon's face and in that of Prince Vasily's valet, who made her a low bow when she met him in the corridor carrying hot water. The old prince was very affectionate and careful in his treatment of his daughter that morning. Princess Mary well knew this painstaking expression of her father's. His face wore that expression when his dry hands clenched with vexation at her not understanding a sum in arithmetic, when rising from his chair he would walk away from her, repeating in a low voice the same words several times over. He came to the point at once, treating her ceremoniously. I have had a proposition made me concerning you," he said with an unnatural smile. I expect you have guessed that Prince Vasily has not come and brought his pupil with him. For some reason Prince Bolkonsky referred to Anatole as a pupil. For the sake of my beautiful eyes. Last night a proposition was made me on your account, and, as you know my principles, I refer it to you. How am I to understand you, mon père? said the princess, growing pale and then blushing. "'How understand me!' cried her father angrily. "'Prince Vasily finds you to his taste as a daughter-in-law and makes a proposal to you on his pupil's behalf. That's how it's to be understood. How understand it! And I ask you!' "'I do not know what you think, father,' whispered the princess. "'I? I? What of me? Leave me out of the question.' I'm not going to get married. What about you? That's what I want to know." The princess saw that her father regarded the matter with disapproval, but at that moment the thought occurred to her that her fate would be decided now or never. 
She lowered her eyes so as to not see the gaze under which she felt that she could not think, but would only be able to submit from habit, and she said, "'I wish only to do your will, but if I had to express my own desire—' She had no time to finish. The old prince interrupted her. "'That's admirable!' he shouted. "'He will take you with your dowry and take Mademoiselle Bourienne into the bargain. She'll be the wife, while you—' The prince stopped. He saw the effect these words had produced on his daughter. She lowered her head and was ready to burst into tears. "'Now then, now then, I'm only joking,' he said. "'Remember this, princess. I hold to the principle that a maiden has a full right to choose. I give you freedom. Only remember that your life's happiness depends on your decision. Never mind me.' "'But I do not know, father.' There's no need to talk. He receives his orders and will marry you or anybody, but you are free to choose. Go to your room, think it over, come back in an hour and tell me in his presence, yes or no. I know you will pray over it. Well, pray if you like, but you had better think it over. Go. Yes or no. Yes or no. Yes or no. He still shouted when the princess, as if lost in a fog, had already staggered out of the study. Her fate was decided, and happily decided. But what her father had said about Mademoiselle Bourienne was dreadful. It was untrue, to be sure, but still it was terrible, and she could not help thinking of it. She was going straight on through the conservatory, neither seeing nor hearing anything, when suddenly the well-known whispering of Mademoiselle Bourienne aroused her. She raised her eyes, and two steps away saw Anatole embracing the Frenchwoman and whispering something to her. With a horrified expression on his handsome face, Anatole looked at Princess Mary, but did not at once take his arm from the waist of Mademoiselle Bourienne, who had not yet seen her. "'Who's that? Why—wait a moment,' Anatole's face seemed to say. Prince Mary looked at them in silence. She could not understand it. At last Mademoiselle Bourienne gave a scream and ran away. Anatole bowed to Princess Mary with a gay smile, as if inviting her to join in a laugh at this strange incident, and then shrugging his shoulders went to the door that led to his own apartments. An hour later Tikhon came to call Princess Mary to the old prince. He added that Prince Vasily was also there. When Tikhon came to her Princess Mary was sitting on the sofa in her room holding the weeping Mademoiselle Bourienne in her arms and gently stroking her hair. The princess' beautiful eyes with all their former calm radiance were looking with tender affection and pity at Mademoiselle Bourienne's pretty face. "'No, princess, I have lost your affection forever,' said Mademoiselle Bourienne. "'Why, I love you more than ever,' said Princess Mary, "'and I will try to do all I can for your happiness. But you despise me.' You who are so pure can never understand being so carried away by passion. Oh, only my poor mother! I quite understand," answered Princess Mary, with a sad smile. Calm yourself, my dear. I will go to my father," she said, and went out. Prince Vasily, with one leg thrown high over the other and a snuff-box in his hand, was sitting there with a smile of deep emotion on his face as if stirred to his heart's core and himself regretting and laughing at his own sensibility, when Princess Mary entered. He hurriedly took a pinch of snuff. 
"'Ah, my dear, my dear,' he began, rising and taking her by both hands. Then, sighing, he added, "'My son's fate is in your hands. Decide, my dear, good, gentle Marie, whom I have always loved as a daughter.' He drew back, and a real tear appeared in his eye. "'Fr, fr, snorted Prince Volkonsky. "'The prince is making a proposition to you in his pupils, I mean his son's name. Do you wish or not to be Prince Anatole Karagin's wife? Reply, yes or no!' he shouted. "'And then I shall reserve the right to state my opinion also. Yes, my opinion, and only my opinion,' added Prince Volkonsky, turning to Prince Vasily and answering his imploring look. "'Yes or no?' "'My desire is never to leave you, father, never to separate my life from yours. I don't wish to marry.' she answered positively, glancing at Prince Vasily and at her father with her beautiful eyes. "'Humbug! Nonsense! Humbug! Humbug! Humbug!' cried Prince Bolkonsky, frowning and taking his daughter's hand. He did not kiss her, but only bending his forehead to hers just touched it, and pressed her hand so that she winced and uttered a cry. Prince Vasily rose. "'My dear, I must tell you, that this is a moment I shall never, never forget. But, my dear, will you not give us a little hope of touching this heart, so kind and generous? Say, perhaps. The future is so long. Say, perhaps. Prince, what I have said is all there is in my heart. I thank you for the honor, but I shall never be your son's wife. Well, so, that's finished, my dear fellow. I am very glad to have seen you, very glad. Go back to your rooms, princess, go," said the old prince. Very, very glad to have seen you," repeated he, embracing Prince Vasily. My vocation is a different one, thought Princess Mary. My vocation is to be happy with another kind of happiness, the happiness of love and self-sacrifice. And, cost what it may, I will arrange poor Amelie's happiness. She loves him so passionately, and so passionately repents. I will do all I can to arrange the match between them. If he is not rich, I will give her the means. I will ask my father and Andrew. I shall be so happy when she is his wife. She is so unfortunate, a stranger, alone, helpless. And, oh God, how passionately she must love him if she could so far forget herself! Perhaps I might have done the same," thought Princess Mary. End of Book Three, Chapter Five. Book Three, Chapter Six, of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Six. It was long since the Rostovs had news of Nicholas. Not till midwinter was the Count at last handed a letter addressed in his son's handwriting. On receiving it, he ran on tiptoe to his study in alarm and haste, trying to escape notice, closed the door, and began to read the letter. Anna Mikhailovna, who had always knew everything that passed in the house, on hearing of the arrival of the letter, went softly into the room and found the Count with it in his hand, sobbing and laughing at the same time. 
Anna Mikhailovna, though her circumstances had improved, was still living with the Rostovs. "'My dear friend,' said she, in a tone of pathetic inquiry, prepared to sympathize in any way. The Count sobbed yet more. "'Nikolenka, a letter, was wounded, my darling boy, the Countess, promoted to be an officer. Thank God! How tell the little Countess!' Anna Mikhailovna sat down beside him, with her own handkerchief wiped the tears from his eyes and from the letter, then having dried her own eyes she comforted the Count, and decided that at dinner and till tea-time she would prepare the Countess, and after tea, with God's help, would inform her. At dinner Anna Mikhailovna talked the whole time about the war news, and about Nikolenka, twice asked when the last letter had been received from him, though she knew that already and remarked that they might very likely be getting a letter from him that day. Each time that these hints began to make the Countess anxious, and she glanced uneasily at the Count and at Anna Mikhailovna, the latter very adroitly turned the conversation to insignificant matters. Natasha, who of the whole family, was the most gifted with a capacity to feel any shades of intonation, look, and expression, pricked up her ears from the beginning of the meal and was certain that there was some secret between her father and Anna Mikhailovna, that it had something to do with their brother, and that Anna Mikhailovna was preparing them for it. Bold as she was, Natasha, who knew how sensitive her mother was to anything relating to Nikolenka, did not venture to ask any questions at dinner, but she was too excited to eat anything and kept wriggling about on her chair regardless of her governess remarks. After dinner she rushed headlong after Anna Mikhailovna, and, dashing at her, flung herself on her neck as soon as she overtook her in the sitting-room. "'Auntie, darling, do tell me what it is.' "'Nothing, my dear.' "'No, dearest, sweet one, honey, I won't give up. I know you know something.' Anna Mikhailovna shook her head. "'You are a little slyboots,' she said. "'A letter from Nikolenka! I'm sure of it!' exclaimed Natasha, reading confirmation in Anna Mikhailovna's face. "'But for God's sake be careful. You know how it may affect your mamma. "'I will, I will, only tell me. You won't? Then I will go and tell at once.' Anna Mikhailovna, in a few words, told her the contents of the letter, on condition that she should tell no one. "'No, on my true word of honor," said Natasha, crossing herself. I won't tell anyone." And she ran off at once to Sonia. "'Nikolenka! Wounded! A letter!' she announced in gleeful triumph. "'Nicholas!' was all Sonia said, instantly turning white. Natasha, seeing the impression the news of her brother's wound produced on Sonia, felt for the first time the sorrowful side of the news. She rushed to Sonia, hugged her, and began to cry. "'A little wound!' but he has been made an officer. He is well now, he wrote himself," said she through her tears. "'There now! It's true that all you women are crybabies,' remarked Petya, pacing the room with large, resolute strides. "'Now I'm very glad, very glad indeed, that my brother has distinguished himself so. You are all blubberers and understand nothing.' Natasha smiled through her tears. You haven't read the letter? asked Sonia. No, 
but she said that it was all over and that he's now an officer. Thank God, said Sonia, crossing herself. But perhaps she deceived you. Let us go to Mama. Petya paced the room in silence for a time. If I'd been in Nikolenka's place, I would have killed even more of those Frenchmen, he said. What nasty brutes they are! I'd have killed so many that there have been a heap of them. Hold your tongue, Petya. What a goose you are! I am not a goose, but they are who cry about trifles, said Petya. Do you remember him? Natasha suddenly asked after a moment's silence. Sonia smiled. Do I remember Nicholas? No, Sonia, but do you remember so that you remember him perfectly, remember everything? said Natasha, with an expressive gesture, evidently wishing to give her words a very definite meaning. I remember Nikolenka too, I remember him well, she said. But I don't remember Boris. I don't remember him a bit. What? You don't remember Boris? asked Sonia in surprise. It's not that I don't remember. I know what he is like, but not as I remember Nikolenka. Him? I just shut my eyes and remember. But Boris? No. She shut her eyes. No, there's nothing at all. Oh, Natasha, said Sonia, looking ecstatically and earnestly at her friend, as if she did not consider her worthy to hear what she meant to say, and as if she were saying it to someone else, with whom joking was out of the question. I am in love with your brother once and for all, and whatever may happen to him or to me shall never cease to love him as long as I live. Natasha looked at Sonia with wondering and inquisitive eyes, and said nothing. She felt that Sonia was speaking the truth, that there was such love as Sonia was speaking of, but Natasha had not yet felt anything like it. She believed it could be, but did not understand it. "'Shall you write to him?' she asked. Sonia became thoughtful. The question of how to write to Nicholas and whether she ought to write tormented her. Now that he was already an officer and a wounded hero, would it be right to remind him of herself, and, as it might seem, of the obligations to her he had taken on himself? "'I don't know. I think if he writes, I will write too,' she said, blushing. "'And you won't feel ashamed to write to him?' Sonia smiled. "'No.' "'And I should be ashamed to write to Boris. I'm not going to.' "'Why should you be ashamed?' "'Well, I don't know.' It's awkward, and would make me ashamed." "'And I know why she'd be ashamed,' said Petya, offended by Natasha's previous remark. "'It's because she was in love with that fat one in spectacles.' That was how Petya described his namesake, the new Count Bezukhov. "'And now she's in love with that singer.' He meant Natasha's Italian singing-master. "'That's why she's ashamed.' "'Petya, you're stupid.' said Natasha. "'No more stupid than you, madam,' said the nine-year-old Petya, with the air of an old brigadier. The countess had been prepared by Anna Mikhailovna's hints at dinner. On retiring to her own room, she sat in an armchair, her eyes fixed on a miniature portrait of her son on the lid of a snuff-box, while the tears kept coming into her eyes. 
Anna Mikhailovna, with the letter, came on tiptoe to the Countess' door and paused. "'Don't come in,' she said to the old Count who was following her. "'Come later.' And she went in, closing the door behind her. The Count put his ear to the keyhole and listened. At first he heard the sound of indifferent voices, then Anna Mikhailovna's voice alone in a long speech, then a cry, then silence, then both voices together with glad intonations, and then footsteps. Anna Mikhailovna opened the door. Her face wore the proud expression of a surgeon who has just performed a difficult operation and admits the public to appreciate his skill. "'It is done,' she said to the Count, pointing triumphantly to the Countess, who sat holding in one hand the snuff-box with its portrait, and in the other the letter, and pressing them alternately to her lips. When she saw the Count, she stretched out her arms to him, embraced his bald head, over which she again looked at the letter and the portrait, and in order to press them again to her lips, she slightly pushed away the bald head. Vera, Natasha, Sonia, and Petya now entered the room and the reading of the letter began. After a brief description of the campaign and the two battles in which he had taken part, and his promotion, Nicholas said that he kissed his father's and mother's hands asking for their blessing, and that he kissed Vera, Natasha, and Petya. Besides that, he sent greetings to Monsieur Schelling, Madame Chaus, and his old nurse, and asked them to kiss for him dear Sonia, whom he loved and thought of just the same as ever. When she heard this, Sonia blushed so that tears came into her eyes, and, unable to bear the looks turned upon her, ran away into the dancing-hall, whirled round it at full speed with her dress puffed out like a balloon, and flushed and smiling plumped down on the floor. The Countess was crying. "'Why are you crying, Mama? asked Vera. "'From all he says one should be glad and not cry.' This was quite true but the Count, the Countess, and Natasha looked at her reproachfully. "'And who is it she takes after?' thought the Countess. Nicholas' letter was read over hundreds of times, and those who were considered worthy to hear it had to come to the Countess, for she did not let it out of her hands. The tutors came, and the nurses, and Dmitri, and several acquaintances, and the Countess re-read the letter each time with fresh pleasure and each time discovered in it fresh proofs of Nikolenka's virtues. How strange, how extraordinary, how joyful it seemed that her son, the scarcely perceptible motion of whose tiny limbs she had felt twenty years ago within her, that son about whom she used to have quarrels with the too indulgent Count, that son who had first learned to say pear and then granny, that this son should now be away in a foreign land amid strange surroundings, a manly warrior doing some kind of man's work of his own, without help or guidance. The universal experience of ages, showing that children do grow imperceptibly from the cradle to manhood, did not exist for the Countess. Her son's growth toward manhood, at each of its stages, had seemed as extraordinary to her as if there had never existed the millions of human beings who grew up in the same way. As twenty years before, it seemed impossible that the little creature who lived somewhere under her heart would ever cry, suck her breast, and begin to speak, so now she could not believe that that little creature could be this strong, brave man, this model son and officer, 
that judging by this letter he now was. "'What a style! How charmingly he describes!' said she, reading the descriptive part of the letter. "'And what a soul! Not a word about himself, not a word! About some Denisov or other, though he himself, I dare say, is braver than any of them. He says nothing about his sufferings. What a heart! How like him it is! And how he has remembered everybody, not forgetting anyone! I always said, when he was only so high, I always said—" For more than a week preparations were being made. Rough drafts of letters to Nicholas from all the household were written and copied out. While under the supervision of the Countess and the solicitude of the Count, money and all things necessary for the uniform and equipment of the newly commissioned officer were collected. Anna Mikhailovna, practical woman that she was, had even managed by favor with army authorities to secure advantageous means of communication for herself and her son. She had the opportunities of sending her letters to the Grand Duke Constantine Pavlovich, who commanded the guards. The Rostovs supposed that the Russian guards abroad was quite a definite address, and that if a letter reached the Grand Duke in command of the guards, there was no reason why it should not reach the Pavlograd regiment, which was, presumably, somewhere in the same neighborhood. And so it was decided to send the letters and money by the Grand Duke's courier to Boris, and Boris was to forward them to Nicholas. The letters were from the old Count, the Countess, Petya, Vera, Natasha, and Sonia, and finally there were six thousand roubles for his outfit and various other things the old Count sent to his son. End of Book Three, Chapter Six. Book Three, Chapter Seven of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Seven. On the twelfth of November. Kutuzov's active army in the camp before Olmutz was preparing to be reviewed next day by the two emperors, the Russian and the Austrian. The guards, just arrived from Russia, spent the night ten miles from Olmutz, and next morning were to come straight to the review, reaching the field at Olmutz by ten o'clock. That day Nicholas Rostov received a letter from Boris, telling him that the Ismailov regiment was quartered for the night ten miles from Olmutz, and that he wanted to see him, as he had a letter and money for him. Rostov was particularly in need of money now that the troops, after their active service, were stationed near Olmutz, and the camp was swarmed with well-provisioned sutlers and Austrian Jews, offering all sorts of tempting wares. The Pavlograds held feast after feast, celebrating awards they had received for the campaign, and made expeditions to Olmutz to visit a certain Caroline the Hungarian, who had recently opened a restaurant there with girls as waitresses. Rostov, who had just celebrated his promotion to a cornetcy and bought Denisov's horse Bedouin, was in debt all round, to his comrades and the sutlers. On receiving Boris' letter he rode with a fellow officer to Olmutz, dined there, drank a bottle of wine, and then set off alone to the guard's camp to find his old playmate. Rostov had not yet had time to get his uniform. He had on a shabby cadet jacket, decorated with a soldier's cross, 
equally shabby cadet's riding breeches lined with worn leather, and an officer's saber with a sword knot. The Don horse he was riding was one he had bought from a Cossack during the campaign, and he wore a crumpled hussar cap stuck jauntily back on one side of his head. As he rode up to the camp, he thought how he would impress Boris and all his comrades of the guards by his appearance, that of a fighting hussar who had been under fire. The guards had made their whole march as if on a pleasure trip, parading their cleanliness and discipline. They had come by easy stages, their knapsacks conveyed on carts, and the Austrian authorities had provided excellent dinners for the officers at every halting place. The regiments had entered and left the town with their bands playing, and by the Grand Duke's orders the men had marched all the way in step, a practice on which the guards prided themselves, the officers on foot and at their proper posts. Boris had been quartered and had marched all the way with Berg, who was already in command of a company. Berg, who had obtained his captaincy during the campaign, had gained the confidence of his superiors by his promptitude and accuracy, and had arranged his money matters very satisfactorily. Boris, during the campaign, had made the acquaintance of many persons who might prove useful to him, and by a letter of recommendation he had brought from Pierre, had become acquainted with Prince Andrew Bolkonsky, through which he hoped to obtain a post on the commander-in-chief's staff. Berg and Boris, having rested after yesterday's march, were sitting, clean and neatly dressed, at a round table in the clean quarters allotted to them, playing chess. Berg held a smoking-pipe between his knees. Boris, in the accurate way characteristic of him, was building a little pyramid of chessmen with his delicate white fingers, while awaiting Berg's move, and watched his opponent's face, evidently thinking about the game as he always thought only of whatever he was engaged on. "'Well, how are you going to get out of that?' he remarked. "'We'll try to,' replied Berg, touching a pawn and then removing his hand. At that moment the door opened. "'Here he is at last!' shouted Rostov. "'And Berg, too! Oh, you petty soufans allez coucher dormir!' he exclaimed, imitating his Russian nurse's French, at which he and Boris used to laugh long ago. "'Dear me how you have changed!' Boris rose to meet Rostov, but in doing so did not omit to steady and replace some chessmen that were falling. He was about to embrace his friend, but Nicholas avoided him. With that peculiar feeling of youth, that dread of beaten tracks and wish to express itself in a manner different from that of its elders which is often insincere, Nicholas wished to do something special on meeting his friend. He wanted to pinch him, push him, do anything but kiss him, a thing everybody did. But notwithstanding this, Boris embraced him in a quiet friendly way and kissed him three times. They had not met for nearly half a year and being at the age when young men take their first steps on life's road, each saw immense changes in the other, quite a new reflection of the society in which they had taken those first steps. Both had changed greatly since they last met, and both were in a hurry to show the changes that had taken place in them. "'Oh, you damned dandies! Clean and fresh as if you'd been to a fete! Not like us sinners of the line!' cried Rostov with martial swagger, and with baritone notes in his voice, new to Boris, pointing to his own mud-bespattered breeches. The German landlady, hearing Rostov's loud voice, popped her head in at the door. "'Hey, is she pretty?' 
he asked with a wink. "'Why do you shout so? You'll frighten them,' said Boris. "'I did not expect you to-day,' he added. "'I only sent you the note yesterday by Bolkonsky, an adjutant of Kutuzov's, who's a friend of mine. I did not think he would get it to you so quickly. Well, how are you? Been under fire already?' asked Boris. Without answering, Rostov shook the soldier's cross of St. George fastened to the cording of his uniform, and, indicating a bandaged arm, glanced at Berg with a smile. "'As you see,' he said. "'Indeed. Yes, yes,' said Boris with a smile. "'And we too have had a splendid march. You know, of course, that His Imperial Highness rode with our regiment all the time, so that we had every comfort and every advantage.' What receptions we had in Poland! What dinners and balls! I can't tell you! And the Tsarevich was very gracious to all our officers!" And the two friends told each other of their doings, the one of his hussar revels and life in the fighting line, the other of the pleasures and advantages of service under members of the imperial family. "'Oh, you guards!' said Rostov. "'I say, send for some wine!' Boris made a grimace. "'If you really want it,' said he. He went to his bed, drew a purse from under the clean pillow, and sent for wine. "'Yes, and I have some money and a letter to give you,' he added. Rostov took the letter and, throwing the money on the sofa, put both arms on the table and began to read. After reading a few lines, he glanced angrily at Berg, then, meeting his eyes, hid his face behind the letter. "'Well!' They've sent you a tidy sum," said Berg, eyeing the heavy purse that sank into the sofa. As for us, Count, we get along on our pay. I can tell you for myself. I say, Berg, my dear fellow," said Rostov, when you get a letter from home and meet one of your own people whom you want to talk everything over with, and I happen to be there, I'll go at once to be out of your way. Do go somewhere, anywhere, to the devil he exclaimed, and immediately seizing him by the shoulder and looking amiably into his face, evidently wishing to soften the rudeness of his words, he added, "'Don't be hurt, my dear fellow. You know I speak from my heart as to an old acquaintance.' "'Oh, don't mention it, Count. I quite understand,' said Berg, getting up and speaking in a muffled, guttural voice. "'Go across to our hosts. They invited you,' added Boris. Berg put on the cleanest of coats, without a spot or speck of dust, stood before a looking-glass and brushed the hair on his temples upwards in the way affected by the Emperor Alexander, and having assured himself from the way Rostov looked at it that his coat had been noticed, left the room with a pleasant smile. "'Oh, dear, what a beast I am!' muttered Rostov as he read the letter. "'Why?' "'Oh, what a pig I am!' not to have written and to have given them such a fright. Oh, what a pig I am!" he repeated, flushing suddenly. Well, have you sent Gabriel for some wine? All right, let's have some. In the letter from his parents was enclosed a letter of recommendation to Bagradian, which the old countess, at Anna Mikhailovna's advice, had obtained through an acquaintance and sent to her son, asking him to take it to its destination and make use of it. What nonsense! Much I need it," said Rostov, throwing the letter under the table. "'Why have you thrown that away?' asked Boris. 
It is some letter of recommendation. What the devil do I want it for?' "'Why, what the devil?' said Boris, picking it up and reading the address. "'This letter would be of great use to you. I want nothing, and I won't be anyone's adjutant.' "'Why not?' inquired Boris. "'It's a lackey's job.' "'You are still the same dreamer, I see,' remarked Boris, shaking his head. "'And you are still the same diplomatist. But that's not the point. Come, how are you?' asked Rostov. "'Well, as you see. So far everything's all right. But I confess I should much like to be an adjutant and not remain at the front. Why?' because, when once a man starts on military service, he should try to make as successful a career of it as possible." "'Oh, that's it,' said Rostov, evidently thinking of something else. He looked intently and inquiringly into his friend's eyes, evidently trying in vain to find the answer to some question. Old Gabriel brought in the wine. "'Should we now send for Berg?' asked Boris. "'He would drink with you. I can't. Well, send for him. And how do you get on with that German?" asked Rostov with a contemptuous smile. He is a very, very nice, honest and pleasant fellow," answered Boris. Again Rostov looked intently into Boris's eyes and sighed. Berg returned, and over the bottle of wine conversation between the three officers became animated. The guardsmen told Rostov of their march, and how they had been made much of in Russia, Poland, and abroad. They spoke of the sayings and doings of their commander, the Grand Duke, and told stories of his kindness and irascibility. Berg, as usual, kept silent when the subject did not relate to himself, but in connection with the stories of the Grand Duke's quick temper, he related with gusto how in Galicia he had managed to deal with the Grand Duke when the latter made a tour of the regiments and was annoyed at the irregularity of a movement. With a pleasant smile Berg related how the Grand Duke had ridden up to him in a violent passion, shouting, "'Arnots!' "'Arnots' was the Tsarevich's favorite expression when he was in a rage, and called for the company commander. "'Would you believe it, Count? I was not at all alarmed, because I knew I was right.' "'Without boasting, you know, I may say that I know the army orders by heart, and know the regulations as well as I do the Lord's Prayer. So, Count, there never is any negligence in my company, and so my conscience was at ease. I came forward." Berg stood up and showed how he presented himself with his hand to his cap, and really it would have been difficult for a face to express greater respect and self-complacency than his did. Well, he stormed at me, as the saying is, stormed and stormed and stormed. It was not a matter of life, but rather of death, as the saying is. Albanians and devils and to Siberia, said Berg with a sagacious smile. I knew I was in the right, so I kept silent. Was not that best, Count? Hey, are you dumb? he shouted. Still I remained silent. And what do you think, Count? The next day it was not even mentioned in the orders of the day. "'That's what keeping one's head means. That's the way, Count,' said Berg, lighting his pipe and emitting rings of smoke. "'Yes, that was fine,' said Rostov, smiling. But Boris noticed that he was preparing to make fun of Berg, and skillfully changed the subject. He asked him to tell them how and where he got his wound. 
This pleased Rostov, and he began talking about it, and as he went on became more and more animated. He told them of his Schoengrabern affair, just as those who have taken part in a battle generally do describe it, that is, as they would like it to have been, as they have heard it described by others, and as sounds well, but not at all as it really was. Rostov was a truthful young man, and would on no account have told a deliberate lie. He began his story meaning to tell everything just as it happened, but imperceptibly, involuntarily, and inevitably he lapsed into falsehood. If he had told the truth to his hearers, who, like himself, had often heard stories of attacks, and had formed a definite idea of what an attack was and were expecting to hear just such a story, they would either not have believed him, or still worse, would have thought that Rostov was himself to blame, since what generally happens to the narrators of cavalry attacks had not happened to him. He could not tell them simply that everyone went at a trot, and that he fell off his horse and sprained his arm and then ran as hard as he could from a Frenchman into the wood. Besides, to tell everything as it really happened, it would have been necessary to make an effort of will to tell only what happened. It is very difficult to tell the truth, and young people are rarely capable of it. His hearers expected a story of how beside himself and all aflame with excitement he had flown like a storm at the square, cut his way in, slashed right and left, how his sabre had tasted flesh, and he had fallen exhausted, and so on. And so he told them all that. In the middle of his story, just as he was saying, you cannot imagine what a strange frenzy one experiences during an attack. Prince Andrew, whom Boris was expecting, entered the room. Prince Andrew, who liked to help young men, was flattered by being asked for his assistance, and being well disposed toward Boris, who had managed to please him the day before, he wished to do what the young man wanted. Having been sent with papers from Kutuzov to the Tsarevich, he looked in on Boris, hoping to find him alone. When he came in and saw an hussar of the line recounting his military exploits, Prince Andrew could not endure that sort of man, he gave Boris a pleasant smile, frowned, as with half-closed eyes he looked at Rostov, bowed slightly and wearily, and sat down languidly on the sofa. He felt it unpleasant to have dropped in on bad company. Rostov flushed up on noticing this, but he did not care, this was a mere stranger. Glancing, however, at Boris, he saw that he too seemed ashamed of the hussar of the line. In spite of Prince Andrew's disagreeable, ironical tone, in spite of the contempt with which Rostov, from his fighting-army point of view, regarded all these little adjutants on the staff of whom the newcomer was evidently one, Rostov felt confused, blushed, and became silent. Boris inquired what news there might be on the staff, and what, without indiscretion, one might ask about our plans. We shall probably advance," replied Bolkonsky, evidently reluctant to say more in the presence of a stranger. Berg took the opportunity to ask, with great politeness, whether, as was rumored, the allowance of forage money to captains of companies would be doubled. To this Prince Andrew answered with a smile that he could give no opinion on such an important government order, and Berg laughed gaily. "'As to your business,' Prince Andrew continued, addressing Boris, we will talk of it later." And he looked round at Rostov. "'Come to me after the review, and we will do what is possible.' And having glanced round the room, Prince Andrew turned to Rostov, whose state of unconquerable childish embarrassment, now changing to anger, he did not condescend to notice, and said, 
I think you were talking of the Schoengraben affair. Were you there? I was there, said Rostov angrily, as if intending to insult the aide-de-camp. Bolkonsky noticed the hussar's state of mind, and it amused him. With a slightly contemptuous smile, he said, Yes, there are many stories now told about that affair. Yes, stories, repeated Rostov loudly, looking with eyes suddenly grown furious, now at Boris, now at Bolkonsky. Yes, many stories. But our stories are the stories of men who have been under the enemy's fire. Our stories have some weight, not like the stories of those fellows on the staff who get rewards without doing anything. Of whom you imagine me to be one? said Prince Andrew, with a quiet and particularly amiable smile. A strange feeling of exasperation, and yet of respect for this man's self-possession, mingled at that moment in Rostov's soul. "'I am not talking about you,' he said. "'I don't know you, and frankly, I don't want to. I am speaking of the staff in general.' "'And I will tell you this,' Prince Andrew interrupted in a tone of quiet authority. You wish to insult me, and I am ready to agree with you that it would be very easy to do so if you haven't sufficient self-respect, but admit that the time and place are very badly chosen. In a day or two we shall all have to take part in a greater and more serious duel. And besides, Trubetskoy, who says he is an old friend of yours, is not at all to blame that my face has the misfortune to displease you. However, he added, rising, you know my name and where to find me, but don't forget that I do not regard either myself or you as having been at all insulted, and as a man older than you. My advice is to let the matter drop. Well, then, on Friday, after the review, I shall expect you, Drubetskoy. Au revoir, exclaimed Prince Andrew, and with a bow to them both he went out. Only when Prince Andrew was gone did Rostov think of what he ought to have said and he was still more angry at having omitted to say it. He ordered his horse at once, and coldly taking leave of Boris, rode home. Should he go to headquarters next day and challenge that affected adjutant, or really let the matter drop, was the question that worried him all the way. He thought angrily of the pleasure he would have at seeing the fright of that small and frail but proud man when covered by his pistol, and then he felt with surprise that, of all the men he knew, there was none he would so much like to have for a friend as that very adjutant whom he so hated. End of Book Three, Chapter Seven. Book Three, Chapter Eight of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Eight. The day after Rostov had been to see Boris, a review was held of the Austrian and Russian troops, both those freshly arrived from Russia and those who had been campaigning under Kutuzov. The two emperors, the Russian with his heir the Tsarevich, and the Austrian with the Archduke, inspected the Allied army of eighty thousand men. From early morning, the smart, clean troops were on the move, forming up on the field before the fortress. Now thousands of feet and bayonets moved and halted at the officer's command, turned with banners flying, formed up at intervals, and wheeled round other similar masses of infantry in different uniforms. 
Now was heard the rhythmic beat of hoofs and the jingling of showy cavalry, in blue, red, and green-braided uniforms, with smartly dressed bandsmen in front mounted on black, roan, or gray horses. Then again, spreading out with the brazen clatter of the polished shining cannon that quivered on the gun-carriages and with the smell of linstocks, came the artillery, which crawled between the infantry and cavalry and took up its appointed position. Not only the generals in full parade uniforms, with their thin or thick waists drawn in to the utmost, their red necks squeezed into their stiff collars and wearing scarves and all their decorations, not only the elegant, pomaded officers, but every soldier with his freshly washed and shaven face and his weapons clean and polished to the utmost, and every horse groomed till its coat shone like satin and every hair of its wetted mane lay smooth, felt that no small matter was happening, but an important and solemn affair. Every general and every soldier was conscious of his own insignificance, aware of being but a drop in that ocean of men, and yet at the same time was conscious of his strength as a part of that enormous whole. From early morning strenuous activities and efforts had begun, and by ten o'clock all had been brought into due order. The ranks were drawn up on the vast field. The whole army was extended in three lines, the cavalry in front, behind it the artillery, and behind that again the infantry. A space like a street was left between each two lines of troops. The three parts of that army were sharply distinguished. Kutuzov's fighting army, with the Pavlograds on the right flank of the front, those recently arrived from Russia, both guards and regiments of the line, and the Austrian troops. But they all stood in the same lines, under one command, and in a like order. Like a wind over leaves ran an excited whisper. They're coming! They're coming! Alarmed voices were heard, and a stir of final preparation swept over all the troops. From the direction of Olmutz in front of them, a group was seen approaching. And at that moment, though the day was still, a light gust of wind blowing over the army slightly stirred the streamers on the lances and the unfolded standards fluttered against their staffs. It looked as if by that slight motion the army itself was expressing its joy at the approach of the emperors. One voice was heard shouting, "'Eyes front!' Then, like the crowing of cocks at sunrise, this was repeated by others from various sides, and all became silent. In the death-like stillness only the tramp of horses was heard. This was the Emperor's suites. The Emperors rode up to the flank, and the trumpets of the 1st Cavalry Regiment played the general march. It seemed as though not the trumpeters were playing, but as if the army itself, rejoicing at the Emperor's approach, had naturally burst into music. Amid these sounds only the youthful, kindly voice of the Emperor Alexander was clearly heard. He gave the words of greeting, and the first regiment roared, Hurrah! so deafeningly, continuously, and joyfully, that the men themselves were awed by their multitude and the immensity of the power they constituted. Rostov, standing in the front lines of Kutuzov's army which the Tsar approached first, experienced the same feeling as every other man in that army, a feeling of self-forgetfulness, a proud consciousness of might, and a passionate attraction to him who was the cause of this triumph. He felt that at a single word from that man all this vast mass, and he himself an insignificant atom in it, would go through fire and water, commit crime, die, or perform deeds of highest heroism, and so he could not but tremble, 
and his heart stands still at the imminence of that word. "'Hurrah! Hurrah! Hurrah!' thundered from all sides, one regiment after another greeting the Tsar with the strains of the march, and then, "'Hurrah!' Then the general march, and again, "'Hurrah! Hurrah!' growing ever stronger and fuller and merging into a deafening roar. Till the Tsar reached it, each regiment in its silence and immobility seemed like a lifeless body, but as soon as it came up it became alive, its thunder joining the roar of the whole line along which he had already passed. Through the terrible and deafening roar of those voices, amid the square masses of troops standing motionless as if turned to stone, Hundreds of riders composing the suites moved carelessly but symmetrically and above all freely, and in front of them two men, the emperors. Upon them the undivided, tensely passionate attention of that whole mass of men was concentrated. The handsome young Emperor Alexander, in the uniform of the horse guards, wearing a cocked hat with its peaks front and back, with his pleasant face and resonant though not loud voice, attracted everyone's attention. Rostov was not far from the trumpeters, and with his keen sight had recognized the Tsar and watched his approach. When he was within twenty paces, and Nicholas could clearly distinguish every detail of his handsome, happy young face, he experienced a feeling of tenderness and ecstasy such as he had never before known. Every trait and every movement of the Tsar's seemed to him enchanting. Stopping in front of the Pavlograds, the Tsar said something in French to the Austrian Emperor and smiled. Seeing that smile, Rostov involuntarily smiled himself, and felt a still stronger flow of love for his sovereign. He longed to show that love in some way, and knowing that this was impossible, was ready to cry. The Tsar called the colonel of the regiment and said a few words to him. "'Oh, God! What would happen to me if the Emperor spoke to me?' thought Rostov. I should die of happiness." The Tsar addressed the officers also. "'I thank you all, gentlemen. I thank you with my whole heart.' To Rostov every word sounded like a voice from heaven. How gladly he would have died at once for his Tsar! "'You have earned the St. George's standards, and will be worthy of them.' "'Oh, to die, to die for him,' thought Rostov. The Tsar said something more which Rostov did not hear, and the soldiers, straining their lungs, shouted, "'Hurrah!' Rostov, too, bending over his saddle, shouted hurrah with all his might, feeling that he would like to injure himself by that shout, if only to express his rapture fully. The Tsar stopped a few minutes in front of the hussars as if undecided. "'How can the Emperor be undecided?' thought Rostov but then even this indecision appeared to him majestic and enchanting, like everything else the Tsar did. That hesitation lasted only an instant. The Tsar's foot, in the narrow-pointed boot then fashionable, touched the groin of the bobtailed bay mare he rode, his hand in a white glove gathered up the reins, and he moved off accompanied by an irregularly swaying sea of aides-de-camp. Farther and farther he rode away, stopping at other regiments, till at last only his white plumes were visible to Rostov from amid the suites that surrounded the emperors. Among the gentlemen of the suite, Rostov noticed Bolkonsky, sitting his horse indolently and carelessly. Rostov recalled their quarrel of yesterday, 
and the question presented itself whether he ought or ought not to challenge Bolkonsky. Of course not, he now thought. Is it worth thinking or speaking of it at such a moment, at a time of such love, such rapture, and such self-sacrifice? What do any of our quarrels and affronts matter? I love and forgive everybody now." When the Emperor had passed nearly all of the regiments, the troops began a ceremonial march past him, and Rostov, on Bedouin, recently purchased from Denisov, rode past too, at the rear of his squadron, that is, alone and in full view of the Emperor. Before he reached him, Rostov, who was a splendid horseman, spurred Bedouin twice and successfully put him into the showy trot in which the animal went when excited. Bending his foaming muzzle to his chest, his tail extended, Bedouin, as if also conscious of the Emperor's eye upon him, passed splendidly, lifting his feet with a high and graceful action, as if flying through the air without touching the ground. Rostov himself, his legs well back and his stomach drawn in and feeling himself one with his horse, rode past the Emperor with a frowning but blissful face, like a very devil, as Denisov expressed it. "'Fine fellows, the Pavlograds,' remarked the Emperor. "'My God, how happy I should be if he ordered me to leap into the fire this instant,' thought Rostov. When the review was over, the newly arrived officers, and also Kutuzov's, collected in groups and began to talk about the awards, about the Austrians and their uniforms, about their lines, about Bonaparte, and how badly the latter would fare now, especially if the Essen Corps arrived and Prussia took our side. But the talk in every group was chiefly about the Emperor Alexander. His every word and movement was described with ecstasy. They all had but one wish to advance as soon as possible against the enemy under the Emperor's command. Commanded by the Emperor himself, they could not fail to vanquish anyone, be it whom it might, so thought Rostov and most of the officers after the review. All were then more confident of victory than the winning of two battles would have made them. End of Book Three, Chapter Eight Book Three, Chapter Nine of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Nine. The day after the review, Boris, in his best uniform and with his comrade Berg's best wishes for success, rode to Olmutz to see Bolkonsky, wishing to profit by his friendliness and obtain for himself the best post he could preferably that of adjutant to some important personage, a position in the army which seemed to him most attractive. It is all very well for Rostov, whose father sends him ten thousand roubles at a time, to talk about not wishing to cringe to anybody and not be anyone's lackey, but I, who have nothing but my brains, have to make a career, and must not miss opportunities, but must avail himself of them," he reflected. He did not find Prince Andrew at Olmutz that day but the appearance of the town where the headquarters and the diplomatic corps were stationed, and the two emperors were living with their suites, households, and courts, only strengthened his desire to belong to that higher world. He knew no one, and despite his smart guardsman uniform, all these exalted personages passing in the streets in their elegant carriages with their plumes, ribbons, and medals, 
both courtiers and military men, seemed so immeasurably above him, an insignificant officer of the guards, that they not only did not wish to, but simply could not be aware of his existence. At the quarters of the commander-in-chief Kutuzov, where he inquired for Bolkonsky, all the adjutants and even the orderlies looked at him as if they wished to impress on him that a great many officers like him were always coming there and that everybody was heartily sick of them. In spite of this, or rather because of it, next day, November 15, after dinner, he again went to Olmutz, and, entering the house occupied by Kutuzov, asked for Bolkonsky. Prince Andrew was in and Boris was shown into a large hall, probably formerly used for dancing, but in which five beds now stood and furniture of various kinds, a table, chairs, and a clavichord. One adjutant, nearest the door, was sitting at the table in a Persian dressing-gown, writing. Another, the red, stout Nesvitsky, lay on a bed with his arms under his head, laughing with an officer who had sat down beside him. A third was playing a Viennese waltz on the clavichord, while a fourth, lying on the clavichord, sang the tune. Bolkonsky was not there. None of these gentlemen changed his position on seeing Boris. The one who was writing and whom Boris addressed turned round crossly, and told him Bolkonsky was on duty and that he should go through the door on the left into the reception-room if he wished to see him. Boris thanked him and went to the reception-room, where he found some ten officers and generals. When he entered, Prince Andrew, his eyes drooping contemptuously, with that peculiar expression of polite weariness which plainly says, "'If it were not my duty, I would not talk to you for a moment,' was listening to an old Russian general with decorations, who stood very erect, almost on tiptoe, with a soldier's obsequious expression on his purple face reporting something. "'Very well, then, be so good as to wait.' said Prince Andrew to the general in Russian, speaking with the French intonation he affected when he wished to speak contemptuously, and noticing Boris, Prince Andrew, paying no more heed to the general who ran after him imploring him to hear something more, nodded and turned to him with a cheerful smile. At that moment Boris clearly realized what he had before surmised, that in the army, besides the subordination and discipline prescribed in the military code, which he and the others knew in the regiment, there was another, more important subordination, which made this tight-laced, purple-faced general wait respectfully, while Captain Prince Andrew, for his own pleasure, chose to chat with Lieutenant Drubetskoy. More than ever was Boris resolved to serve in future, not according to the written code, but under this unwritten law. He felt now that merely by having been recommended to Prince Andrew, he had already risen above the general, who at the front had the power to annihilate him, a lieutenant of the guards. Prince Andrew came up to him and took his hand. "'I am very sorry you did not find me in yesterday. I was fussing about with Germans all day. We went with Weyroter to survey the dispositions. When Germans start being accurate, there's no end to it.' Boris smiled as if he understood what Prince Andrew was alluding to as something generally known. But it was the first time he had heard Weyroder's name, or even the term dispositions. "'Well, my dear fellow, so you still want to be an adjutant. I have been thinking about you.' "'Yes, I was thinking—for some reason Boris could not help blushing—of asking the commander-in-chief. He has had a letter from Prince Karagin about me. 
I only wanted to ask because I fear the guards won't be in action," he added, as if in apology. "'All right, all right, we'll talk it over,' replied Prince Andrew. "'Only let me report this gentleman's business, and I shall be at your disposal.' While Prince Andrew went to report about the purple-faced general, that gentleman, evidently not sharing Boris's conception of the advantages of the unwritten code of subordination, looked so fixedly at the presumptuous lieutenant who had prevented his finishing what he had to say to the adjutant that Boris felt uncomfortable. He turned away and waited impatiently for Prince Andrew's return from the commander-in-chief's room. "'You see, my dear fellow, I have been thinking about you,' said Prince Andrew when they had gone into the large room where the clavichord was. "'It's no use your going to the commander-in-chief. He would say a lot of pleasant things, ask you to dinner. That would not be bad as regards the unwritten code, thought Boris. But nothing more would come of it. There will soon be a battalion of us aides to camp and adjutants. But this is what we'll do. I have a good friend, an adjutant-general, and an excellent fellow, Prince Dolgorukov. And though you may not know it, the fact is that now Katusov with his staff and all of us count for nothing. Everything is now centered round the Emperor. So we will go to Dolgorukov. I have to go there anyhow, and I have already spoken to him about you. We shall see whether he cannot attach you to himself or find a place for you somewhere nearer the sun." Prince Andrew always became specially keen when he had to guide a young man and help him to worldly success. Under cover of obtaining help of this kind for another, which from pride he would never accept for himself, he kept in touch with the circle which confers success and which attracted him. He very readily took up Boris's cause and went with him to Dolgorukov. It was late in the evening when they entered the palace at Olmutz occupied by the emperors and their retinues. That same day a council of war had been held in which all the members of the Hofkriegsrath and both emperors took part. At that council, contrary to the views of the old generals Kutuzov and Prince Schwarzenberg, it had been decided to advance immediately and give battle to Bonaparte. The council of war was just over when Prince Andrew, accompanied by Boris, arrived at the palace to find Dolgorukov. Everyone at headquarters was still under the spell of the day's council, at which the party of the young had triumphed. The voices of those who counseled delay and advised waiting for something else before advancing had been so completely silenced, and their arguments confuted by such conclusive evidence of the advantages of attacking, that what had been discussed at the council—the coming battle and the victory that would certainly result from it—no longer seemed to be in the future but in the past. All the advantages were on our side. Our enormous forces, undoubtedly superior to Napoleon's, were concentrated in one place. The troops inspired by the Emperor's presence were eager for action. The strategic position where the operations would take place was familiar in all its details to the Austrian general Weyroder. A lucky accident had ordained that the Austrian army should maneuver the previous year on the very fields where the French had now to be fought. The adjacent locality was known and shown in every detail on the maps, and Bonaparte, evidently weakened, was undertaking nothing. Dolgorukov, one of the warmest advocates of an attack, had just returned from the council, tired and exhausted, but eager and proud of the victory that had been gained. Prince Andrew introduced his protégé, 
But Prince Dolgorukov, politely and firmly pressing his hand, said nothing to Boris, and, evidently unable to suppress the thoughts which were uppermost in his mind at that moment, addressed Prince Andrew in French. "'Ah, my dear fellow, what a battle we have gained! God grant that the one that will result from it will be as victorious! However, dear fellow,' he said abruptly and eagerly, "'I must confess to having been unjust to the Austrians, and especially to Weyroder. What exactitude, what minuteness, what knowledge of the locality, what foresight for every eventuality, every possibility, even to the smallest detail! No, my dear fellow, no conditions better than our present ones could have been devised. This combination of Austrian precision with Russian valor, what more could be wished for? So the attack is definitely resolved on? asked Bolkonsky. And do you know, my dear fellow, it seems to me that Bonaparte has decidedly lost bearings. You know that a letter was received from him today for the Emperor. Dolgorukov smiled significantly. Is that so? And what did he say? inquired Bolkonsky. What can he say? tra de ra de ra and so on, merely to gain time. I tell you, he is in our hands, that's certain. But what was most amusing, he continued with a sudden, good-natured laugh, was that we could not think how to address the reply. If not as consul, and of course not as emperor, it seemed to me it should be to General Bonaparte. But between not recognizing him as emperor and calling him General Bonaparte there is a difference," remarked Bolkonsky. "'That's just it,' interrupted Dolgorukov quickly, laughing. "'You know Belieben. He's a very clever fellow. He suggested addressing him as usurper and enemy of mankind.' Dolgorukov laughed merrily. "'Only that?' said Bolkonsky. All the same, it was Belieben who found a suitable form for the address. He is a wise and clever fellow. What was it? To the head of the French government, au chef du gouvernement français, said Golgorukov with grave satisfaction. Good, wasn't it? Yes, but he will dislike it extremely, said Bolkonsky. Oh, yes, very much. My brother knows him. He's dined with him, the present emperor more than once in Paris, and tells me he never met a more cunning or subtle diplomatist. You know, a combination of French adroitness and Italian play-acting. Do you know the tale about him and Count Markov? Count Markov was the only man who knew how to handle him. You know the story of the handkerchief? It is delightful." And the talkative Dolgorukov, turning now to Boris, now to Prince Andrew, told how Bonaparte, wishing to test Markov, our ambassador, purposely dropped a handkerchief in front of him and stood looking at Markov, probably expecting Markov to pick it up for him, and how Markov immediately dropped his own beside it and picked it up without touching Bonaparte's. "'Delightful,' said Bolkonsky. "'But I have come to you, Prince, as a petitioner on behalf of this young man. You see—but before Prince Andrew could finish, an aide-de-camp came in to summon Dolgorukov to the Emperor. "'Oh, what a nuisance!' said Dolgorukov, getting up hurriedly and pressing the hands of Prince Andrew and Boris. "'You know, I should be very glad to do all in my power, both for you and for this dear young man.' Again he pressed the hand of the latter with an expression of good-natured, sincere, and animated levity. "'But, you see, another time.' 
Boris was excited by the thought of being so close to the higher powers as he felt himself to be at that moment. He was conscious that here he was in contact with the springs that set in motion the enormous movements of the mass of which, in his regiment, he felt himself a tiny, obedient, and insignificant atom. They followed Prince Dolgorukov out into the corridor, and met, coming out of the door of the Emperor's room by which Dolgorukov had entered, a short man in civilian clothes with a clever face and sharply projecting jaw, which, without spoiling his face, gave him a peculiar vivacity and shiftiness of expression. This short man nodded to Dolkorukov as to an intimate friend and stared at Prince Andrew with cool intensity, walking straight toward him and evidently expecting him to bow or to step out of his way. Prince Andrew did neither. A look of animosity appeared on his face, and the other turned away and went down the side of the corridor. "'Who is that?' asked Boris. He is one of the most remarkable, but to me most unpleasant of men, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Prince Adam Zartorisky. It is such men as he who decide the fate of nations," added Bolkonsky, with a sigh he could not suppress, as they passed out of the palace. Next day the army began its campaign, and up to the very Battle of Austerlitz Boris was unable to see either Prince Andrew or Dolgorukov again and remained for a while with the Ismailov Regiment. End of Book 3, Chapter 9《Book 3, Chapter 10 of War and Peace, Volume 1, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 10 At dawn on the 16th of November, Denisov's squadron, in which Nicholas Rostov served, and which was in Prince Bagradian's detachment, moved from the place where it had spent the night, advancing into action as arranged and, after going behind other columns for about two-thirds of a mile, was stopped on the high road. Rostov saw the Cossacks and then the first and second squadrons of hussars and infantry battalions and artillery pass by and go forward, and then Generals Bagradian and Dolgorukov rode past with their adjutants. All the fear before action which he had experienced as previously, all the inner struggle to conquer that fear, all his dreams of distinguishing himself as a true hussar in this battle had been wasted. Their squadron remained in reserve, and Nicholas Rostov spent that day in a dull and wretched mood. At nine in the morning he heard firing in front and shouts of hurrah, and saw wounded being brought back, there were not many of them, and at last he saw how a whole detachment of French cavalry was brought in, convoyed by a sotnya of Cossacks. Evidently the affair was over, and though not big, had been a successful engagement. The men and officers returning spoke of a brilliant victory, of the occupation of the town of Vichau, and the capture of a whole French squadron. The day was bright and sunny after a sharp night frost, and the cheerful glitter of that autumn day was in keeping with the news of victory which was conveyed, not only by the tales of those who had taken part in it, but also by the joyful expression on the faces of soldiers, officers, generals, and adjutants, as they passed Rostov going or coming. And Nicholas, who had vainly suffered all the dread that precedes a battle, and had spent that happy day in inactivity, was all the more depressed. 
Come here, Wastov. Let's drink to drown our grief," shouted Denisov, who had settled down by the roadside with a flask and some food. The officers gathered round Denisov's canteen, eating and talking. "'There! They are bringing another!' cried one of the officers, indicating a captive French dragoon who was being brought in on foot by two Cossacks. One of them was leading by the bridle a fine large French horse he had taken from the prisoner. "'Sell us that horse!' Denisov called out to the Cossacks. "'If you like, Your Honor.' The officers got up and stood round the Cossacks and their prisoner. The French dragoon was a young Alsatian who spoke French with a German accent. He was breathless with agitation, his face was red, and when he heard some French spoken he at once began speaking to the officers, addressing first one, then another. He said he would not have been taken, it was not his fault but the corporals, who had sent him to see some horse-cloths, though he had told him the Russians were there. And at every word he added, "'But don't hurt my little horse!' and stroked the animal. It was plain he did not quite grasp where he was. Now he excused himself for having been taken prisoner, and now, imagining himself before his own officers, insisted on his soldierly discipline and zeal in the service. He brought with him into our rear-guard all the freshness of atmosphere of the French army, which was so alien to us. The Cossacks sold the horse for two gold pieces, and Rostov, being the richest of the officers, now that he had received his money, bought it. "'But don't hurt my little horse,' said the Alsatian good-naturedly to Rostov when the animal was handed over to the hussar. Rostov smilingly reassured the dragoon and gave him money. "'Allez, allez!' said the Cossack, touching the prisoner's arm to make him go on. "'The Emperor! The Emperor!' was suddenly heard among the hussars. All began to run and bustle, and Rostov saw coming up the road behind him several riders with white plumes in their hats. In a moment everyone was in his place waiting. Rostov did not know or remember how he ran to his place and mounted. Instantly, his regret at not having been in action and his dejected mood amid people of whom he was weary had gone. Instantly every thought of himself had vanished. He was filled with happiness at his nearness to the Emperor. He felt that this nearness by itself made up to him for the day he had lost. He was happy as a lover when the longed-for moment of meeting arrives. Not daring to look round and without looking round, he was ecstatically conscious of his approach. He felt it not only from the sound of the hoofs of the approaching cavalcade, but because as he drew near everything grew brighter, more joyful, more significant, and more festive around him. Nearer and nearer to Rostov came that sun shedding beams of mild and majestic light around, and already he felt himself enveloped in those beams, heard his voice that kindly, calm and majestic voice that was yet so simple. And as if in accord with Rostov's feeling, there was a deathly stillness amid which was heard the Emperor's voice. "'The Pavlograd hussars?' he inquired. "'The reserve, sire,' replied a voice, a very human one compared to that which had said, "'The Pavlograd hussars?' The Emperor drew level with Rostov and halted. Alexander's face was even more beautiful than it had been three days before at the review. It shone with such gaiety and youth, such innocent youth, that it suggested the liveliness of a fourteen-year-old boy, and yet it was the face of the majestic Emperor. 
casually, while surveying the squadron, the Emperor's eyes met Rostov's and rested on them for not more than two seconds. Whether or no the Emperor understood what was going on in Rostov's soul, it seemed to Rostov that he understood everything. At any rate, his light blue eyes gazed for about two seconds into Rostov's face. A gentle, mild light poured from them. Then, all at once, he raised his eyebrows, abruptly touched his horse with his left foot, and galloped on. The young emperor could not restrain his wish to be present at the battle, and in spite of the remonstrances of his courtiers, at twelve o'clock, left the third column with which he had been and galloped toward the vanguard. Before he came up with the hussars, several adjutants met him with news of the successful result of the action. This battle, which consisted in the capture of a French squadron, was represented as a brilliant victory over the French, and so the Emperor and the whole army, especially while the smoke hung over the battlefield, believed that the French had been defeated and were retreating against their will. A few minutes after the Emperor had passed, the Pavlograd division was ordered to advance. In Vichau itself, a petty German town, Rostov saw the Emperor again. In the marketplace, where there had been some rather heavy firing before the Emperor's arrival, lay several killed and wounded soldiers whom there had not been time to move. The Emperor, surrounded by his suite of officers and courtiers, was riding a bobtailed chestnut mare, a different one from that which he had ridden at the review, and bending to one side, he gracefully held a gold lorgnette to his eyes and looked at a soldier who lay prone, with blood on his uncovered head. The wounded soldier was so dirty, coarse, and revolting that his proximity to the Emperor shocked Rostov. Rostov saw how the Emperor's rather round shoulders shuddered as if a cold shiver had run down them, how his left foot began convulsively tapping the horse's side with the spur, and how the well-trained horse looked round unconcerned and did not stir. An adjutant, dismounting, lifted the soldier under the arms to place him on a stretcher that had been brought. The soldier groaned. "'Gently, gently! Can't you do it more gently?' said the Emperor, apparently suffering more than the dying soldier, and he rode away. Rostov saw tears filling the Emperor's eyes, and heard him, as he was riding away, say to Zartorisky, "'What a terrible thing war is! What a terrible thing! Quelle terrible chose que la guerre!' The troops of the vanguard were stationed before Vichau, within sight of the enemy's lines, which all day long had yielded ground to us at the least firing. The Emperor's gratitude was announced to the vanguard, rewards were promised, and the men received a double ration of vodka. The campires crackled and the soldiers' songs resounded even more merrily than on the previous night. Denisov celebrated his promotion to the rank of major, and Rostov, who had already drunk enough, at the end of the feast proposed the Emperor's health. "'Not our sovereign the Emperor!' as they say at official dinners," said he, but the health of our sovereign, that good, enchanting, and great man. Let us drink to his health and to the certain defeat of the French. If we fought before, he said, not letting the French pass, as at Schongraburn, what shall we not do now when he is at the front? We will all die for him gladly. Is it not so, gentlemen? Perhaps I am not saying it right, I have drunk a good deal, but that is how I feel, and so do you too. To the health of Alexander I! Hurrah! 
"'Hurrah!' rang the enthusiastic voices of the officers. And the old cavalry captain, Kirsten, shouted enthusiastically and no less sincerely than the twenty-year-old Rostov. When the officers had emptied and smashed their glasses, Kirsten filled others, and in shirt-sleeves and breeches went glass in hand to the soldiers' bonfires, and with his long gray mustache, his white chest showing under his open shirt, he stood in a majestic pose in the light of the campfire, waving his uplifted arm. "'Lads, here's to our sovereign the Emperor, and victory over our enemies! Hurrah!' he exclaimed in his dashing old hussar's baritone. The hussars crowded round and responded heartily with loud shouts. Late that night, when all had separated, Denisov, with his short hand, patted his favorite Rostov on the shoulder. "'As there's no one to fall in love with on campaign, he's fallen in love with the Tsar,' he said. "'Denisov, don't make fun of it!' cried Rostov. "'It is such a lofty, beautiful feeling, such a—I believe it, I believe it, friend, and I share and approve.' "'No, you don't understand.' and Rostov got up and went wandering among the campfires, dreaming of what happiness it would be to die, not in saving the Emperor's life—he did not even dare to dream of that—but simply to die before his eyes. He really was in love with the Tsar and the glory of the Russian arms and the hope of future triumph. And he was not the only man to experience that feeling during those memorable days preceding the Battle of Austerlitz. Nine-tenths of the men in the Russian army were then in love though less ecstatically, with their Tsar and the glory of the Russian arms. End of Book Three, Chapter Ten Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.